Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. You're listening to A Little Bit Dusty, all things country, rural and outback Australia. Grab a hot or cold one and enjoy the conversation ahead. G'day guys, welcome to another episode of A Little Bit Dusty. Thanks very much for joining us. I'm your host Tyson Godden and firstly I'd just like to apologise for the lack of episode last week. There's been lots of guests that have either cancelled or have had to rescheduled or have had other events on, which is fine. Uh, the guest I was supposed to have on last week, if you might not have seen my Instagram video, was Jake Kassar from Jake Kassar Bushcraft. We were going to chat about all things from surviving out in the bush, tracking, bush plants, food, medicine, foraging, and all that sort of thing. That's his uh, field of expertise that he's been involved with for a couple of decades. But as you guys might have seen from the news, and it's now making a bit more press, him and his team, along with some other emergency services, have been endlessly diverting their time and dedication to helping find Logan, the young missing male from the Central Coast. I think they're on their 14th day straight now. So uh, very inspiring and I do wish for Jake and all his team the best wishes and that they find Logan hopefully sooner rather than later. As you guys might have seen from the video that I put up a couple of days ago on my Instagram page, that's at at a underscore little bit dusty. There's no guest on this week. I'm just going to be talking about the book that I read recently called Sold Down the River, and it's from Scott Hamilton and Stuart Kells. So, Sold Down the River, How Robber Barons and Wall Street Traders Cornered Australia's Water Market. Now, it came out a couple of months ago, and I've got to say, when I was reading it, I was probably pretty close to tearing it in half about a dozen times just because it really outlines just the ugly stats and statistics of what's happening with our water, where it's going, where it's being sold, why it's a stock commodity, how farmers are losing out and that sort of thing. So in this episode, I'll go through a bit of this book. I highly encourage everyone to get a copy. You can get it from Booktopia and plenty of other sites as well. It's one for the collection. It's one that you should share around, one that your friend should have a lend of because it really breaks down some really, really critical facts about what's happening with Australian water. So I'm going to talk a bit about this book. We're going to go through some some quotes and a bit of facts and a bit of an introduction into the water market and that sort of thing as well. Before we do, my old housemate told me a quote a while ago, which I hadn't heard before, and that was, whiskey is for drinking and water is for fighting over. Now, that comes from a book from Two Men in a Titty, and it was from Robert Buchan, the mayor of St. George in Queensland. Now, I wasn't really too sure what to make of this quote a while ago, but after chatting with Ron Pike in Series 1 and researching everything about all the water issues and water politics over the last couple of years, the quote definitely makes sense. 
uh, especially in Australian culture too, you know, beer, wine, whiskey, spirits, that sort of thing. It's a drink that's usually involved with, yeah, getting together with friends or catching up and celebrations, that sort of thing as well. So a little bit about both the authors. Scott Hamilton and Stuart Kells, both men come from a kingdom of knowledge. Scott Hamilton's also a researcher, policy advisor, experienced senior executive with experience in climate change, energy, water, waste, and natural resource management. Stuart Kells is also quite the literate, writing many, many books in his career and with a curious mind. So the two paired together was a perfect fit for this book. It results in a clear and concise read about the ins and outs of water trading in Australia. So the concept of water trading, in theory, sounds okay. It sounds like a good idea. Trading one good for another, you know. So for example, a farmer who has plenty of wheat and grain but needs water for his other crop, uh, but another farmer who has plenty of water but might need wheat and grain for feed for some of his animals, could result in both of them conversing and organizing a trade. So both farmers would win, both farmers would get what they need and the trade successful, could possibly resulting in future trades which could also improve the economics and the growth of food and other goods in the community as well. But that's using water as a good to trade for another good. So the concept of water trading, before it turned into this disastrous market, would have been a great and practical idea at the time. So at the start of this book, there's a prologue and the quote comes from a farmer in the Riverina area, that's Lachlan Marshall. And every quote and every citation that comes from this book are from genuine people that Scott and Stuart have interviewed. They interview brokers, farmers, investors, all sorts of people to get that relativity and that understanding of the matter that's they're talking about and what the, and what the topics are in this book, which is mainly water trading and the water market. The quote, the prologue from the start of the book is this. You're about to go down a rabbit warren that'll scare the living daylights out of you. The more stories you hear, the more you'll see how inside knowledge is used and how rules are flexed and broken to achieve set outcomes. Honestly, you are going to embark on a journey where you will say daily, oh my God, I cannot believe this. And you'll think back to me telling you this because of the effect this has on the community. Now that's just on the first page. So that's even before reading the first chapter. Surely that gives you an indication of just how disastrous this issue is. Next page on, further down the line, the quote continues. Then we had settlement and it became the food bowl to the nation. This is being undone. Water has gone from hundreds of dollars per megalitre to thousands of dollars. The amount of irrigation that happens is probably less than half of what it was. Someone is making a killing, but not the farmers. Water trading has destroyed our community. It's gutted it. It's shelled it. And he's absolutely right, because from water trading, you're essentially separating water from land. As I'll get on to further down the line in this episode, you'll see the devastation and just the effect that it has of a farmer going to buy, uh, say, property or land, but the water is separate. You have to come to terms with the government on obtaining a certain license, which just seems so absurd in the first place. But this is the system that's in place. This is the complexity of the issue. And it's going to take a long while, I believe, to get it back to a point where the farmers are back on a comfortable level and profiting and to be succeeding in their crops. And more of the money is going to the farmers in the regional communities, not people in suits and people in Wall Street or companies like in Canada called Australian Water. The irony, the corruption and the hypocrisy on this topic is just so absurd. But we'll continue. This is another article that came from The Mandarin. is an online website. It gives you a bit of indication of just how big the Murray-Darling Basin is and its importance to the flora and fauna of Australia. 
Encompassing more than 40 indigenous nations, the Murray-Darling Basin covers an area bigger than France. One of Australia's greatest environmental assets, it's home to 16 internationally significant wetlands, 35 endangered species, and 98 different species of water birds. It's the beating heart of regions and sustains 40% of our production. The story of Australian water is written into its ancient rivers, creeks, and wetlands. Also take in mind that there's about two and a half million people that live in the areas between the four states of which the Murray-Darling Basin flows through. So 10% of our population need this basin to be efficient and flowing into the right areas so all communities have enough drinking water, water to irrigate their crops, which, which will mean there'll be enough food for the communities and also enough food for us, for Australian public as well because this is pretty much the water and food bowl of our nation. So the first documented separation of water and water act was from land was in 1994 and part of me understands why. If a town has a river, a dam or lake that supplies the community with water for their houses or to irrigate their crops and one or two farmers get greedy with their usage and not using an equal amount like the rest of the town, then a calling to regulate water usage makes sense. This is another excerpt from the article by The Mandarin and this is around 2017 where the Murray-Darling Basin Act was in place and where a lot of the shit show really started to take place. In June 2017, researchers from the University of New South Wales found a dramatic decline in basin water bird populations. The numbers were down around 70% over the preceding three decades. In the summer of 2018, the rivers, lakes and billabongs of the basins were parched. Oxygen levels dropped. A viral video around the 8th of January 2019 showed two gentlemen knee-deep in greed muck and holding dead cod. Some of those species held great significance to the Murray and they were up to 60 years old and weighing up to about 50 kilos, I'm pretty sure, as well. One of the gentlemen says, I think Rob McBride, this has nothing to do with drought. This is a man-made disaster. Now, in saying that, obviously Australia is a country full of droughts and floods. Uh, yes, there are times where the land is dry and the land is plenty when you do have uh, water flowing through a lot of the towns at high high volumes. But when you have instances like this, when water is drained from Menindee Lakes and other parts through the basins, the water that's left in those areas starts to get saline, starts to get acidic, uh, there's full of algae and salt and that sort of thing, and then it becomes a man-made problem. There's a lot of speculation that a lot of this water thing is mainly due to climate change, but when you have people selling off gigalitres and megalitres of water to foreign entities and they're holding on to those large amounts of water with those licences, I believe that's a bigger part of the picture and a larger chunk of the problem. Tempers again flared and fingers were again pointed. An investigation into the causes of the maths deaths of fish concluded. The conditions leading to this event are an interaction between a severe but not unprecedented drought and more significantly, excess upstream diversion of water for irrigation. Prior releases of water from Menindee Lakes contributed to lack of local reserves. Now this is from page 81 of the book. From the Gerald Deary area, farmer Peter Burke states, water markets were an opportunity to manage risks, grow the business and keep food on the table. All the equi equity was tied up in the permanent water and the yield was so unreliable a bit some years, none others, all of it the year after that. Then came the millennium drought. We'd bought machinery and we were share farming and all sorts of stuff. 
Then we were basically left holding the baby when the drought hit. We had all this debt and no income. Along come the government making offers to buy permanent water to take it back for environmental flows. And gee, it was nearly double, maybe more than that, about $1,400 a megalitre. So in this example, farmers have had to financially struggle to keep up with the information and the updates of the price of water per megalitre, buying it at that price if they don't have enough or if it doesn't work out the way they'd planned. They're basically left left for dead, broke, in in debt and in drought. Then the government will come back to sell them back permanent water at a price which is too good to refuse and they start back on their feet again to some degree. So there's a lot of manipulation between the loopholes in these licenses between the government, also the different types of water licenses and rights as well. It's it just it's, it's an absolute shit show, but we'll keep going through it. Passed under the Howard government and implemented under the Rudd-Gillard governments, the 2007 Water Act turned the Murray-Darling Basin Commission into the Murray-Darling Basin Authority and gave a foundation to the Murray-Darling Basin Plan. The aim of the plan was to improve the health and sustainability of the basin's river systems while continuing to support farming and other industries. It was signed into law with the cross-party support in 2012. So this is while Malcolm Turnbull was water minister. The proposal was to fix the Murray-Darling and return water to the environment. So now this is what puzzles me. Since Australia hasn't constructed a dam in over 50 years, and we all know that's pretty much the most efficient way to store and hold water, there hasn't really been a better system built in place as of yet. Since Australia hasn't constructed a dam in over 50 years, and a percentage of the dams and the lakes and weirs we have constructed are in need of desperate repair and maintenance, where is the environment that water must be returned to? I don't think they understood where the environment was or where the mouth of the Murray was if it needed to be repaired or if the water had to return to that part of the environment. So you had 400 water-unaware people join the Murray-Darling Basin Authority and this is where a lot of the flexibility and loopholes came in for them to trade large amounts of water to stockbrokers, investors, a nice sort of thing, but also people outside of Australia and this is where it really gets ugly. So during rainfall, a good 90% of that water, along with precipitation, runs through rivers, lakes, basins, etc., and eventually runs off into the ocean. During flood and drought periods, which happen often in Australia, well, I believe at least, that the water should be stored and used efficiently. One of the most efficient ways to catch and store that water is by building dams. And especially we've seen this year and what will happen over the next couple of months in this alleged Il Nina situation, a lot of our dams are now over 100% capacity, resulting in fast-flowing water out of the dams, off the top, into the towns, causing floods, followed by the devastation that that has in the communities. Roads are closed, schools delayed, works cancelled. It's also not to mention the cleanup involved as well. So the few dams that we have that are now above 100% are just gushing out water through these towns and they're getting flooded. People can't leave their house. Uh, Cars are flowing through the streets and it's just devastating. There's quite a contradictory argument that mainly the Greens state that building a dam is harmful for the environment because you're clearing a lot of land, you're making this large pit essentially. But to argue that, you're making an area that stores and catches water. And as you might have heard from my chat with Ron Pike or some of his documents from Google Quadrant, when you build a dam or any environment that holds large amounts of water, what you'll start to see is things like uh, frogs, insects, 
birds, a lot of other animals will start to make their way through to that new dam and set up their new life there. You end up having this new environment where lots of animals and lots of species eventually thriving in. They start to reproduce, which minimizes the risks of endangered species going completely extinct. A lot of fish will feed off that bottom area, again, reproducing, possibly saving other endangered species of fish and other animals from being extinct. And it really just seems like a win-win. Sure, there might be a bit of groundwork and a bit of clearing at the start, but the environment you're creating after that is beneficial for humans and all animals and bird life and insects and that sort of thing as well. It just seems like a no-brainer in my opinion anyway. So as I was saying before, the Murray-Darling Basin Authority is made up of 400 water unaware bureaucrats. Why the authority was made in the first place still baffles me. But as Hamilton and Kell state in their book, the water market is large and growing. The trade in the basin water rights, that's permanent water and temporary, is now around $1.8 billion per year. The total value of the Murray-Darling Basin water rights is estimated to be around $26.3 billion. Now, I still have trouble trying to wrap my head around that. Water being a natural resource, being the most vital resource that we all need to survive, being traded off and sold off as a stock commodity to brokers and investors and other people that are using it as capital and making profit just for the sake of holding onto that water without any land to irrigate, by the way. $26.3 billion. That's how much the value of the trading is worth at the moment. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. It just stinks. It just stinks of absolute corruption. Now let's talk about the water market and the type of trading. 
So if one was to purchase a mount of water, they would have to decide what right or license they need. Water purchases are broken up into a few categories, being temporary or permanent. For example, since water has now been separated from land, which farmers now pay for the land, but the water that flows through that property is separate, they have to negotiate a contract with the government for a water license to, to grow their crops. A farmer might need temporary water to finish the production of his or her crop if the farmer has not received the right amount during that season. The farmer would then request for water in that one instance. A permanent water license is if a particular crop needs water constantly flowing through it, such as almonds, macadamias and cotton. And what I found in recent times, and what it states in this book and other articles as well, is a lot of other companies outside of Australia will hold on to large amounts of water for profit, drive other farmers out of that land, clear their crops and start farming for water heavy, permanent water heavy crops such as macadamias, almonds and cottons and that sort of thing as well. So then because they have that water license and they have the capital and they hold that water, they now can farm into Australia, farm those crops, make even more profit off it and negotiate further licenses and loopholes and flexibilities with other people that might want to invest with them or invest against them. So the farmer will request for the water in that one instance. So they would then have to come to an agreement with the government to decide how much water is given to that farmer annually. What's also in this book is how they describe the water as a stock commodity and they use similar tactics as what they do in Wall Street, which is called hyperspeed. It's a hyperspeed in fluctuation of prices and a hyperspeed results of transactions too. So when someone sells off a large amount of water to someone uh, in another share or to another investor, the transaction happens so quickly and the price goes up and down so quickly as well that it's very hard for anyone to keep up. So Mick Keeley is an interim basin inspector general and he wrote in 2019, water literacy has changed such as the need for irrigators to now understand and have knowledge of how a water market operates. A farmer not, needs to not only farm, but simultaneously be an economist, trader, and weather person. There's limited time to do all these things, resulting in some family farms falling behind, which is what I was stating before. So if you're not up to date with the terminologies, uh, the prices, the general understanding of the market, and that sort of thing as well, a lot of the times the banks will bribe farmers and say, look, just get yourself into that market, get water into your capital, get yourself into the market and start understanding it. And the banks are pushing them because a lot of the banks are involved with the transactions as well, obviously. But because it fluctuates so much, the farmer needs a lot of time outside of actually farming his crop to understand how it all works. It's an extremely complex and unfair issue to the farmer and the thing is more investors and bankers and brokers and that sort of thing are so involved with the system that they know what works and they'll use that to manipulate and bribe the farmer into buying water for an stagnant price. The other thing as well, it talks about the different licenses, the type of water rights, what kind of water you're buying as well. Uh, so it's like bore water or permanent water and that sort of thing too. The actual water market itself has its own specific language in a sense, its own specific type of trading. Again, that hyperspeed transaction, everything everything happens at such a quick pace that it becomes extremely hard to keep up with what's actually happening with it, which could lead farmers into paying way too much for a certain amount of water than what they need. 
Also, keep in mind that if a farmer goes to purchase water through a banker or a broker, that banker or broker is getting commission on that sale as well. And if they have a better understanding of the market, they can then exploit the farmer to, at say, a couple of hundred dollars to up to a thousand dollars per megalitre or even higher for gigalitres and larger amounts as well, which essentially drives them broke. That's the thing. This market was essentially made as a good idea to regulate people's water usage and trade and cap and that sort of thing. But it's now just turned into this ugly, ugly system and it's driving so many farmers out of their market, but only those who are either involved with water investors that are still farmers as well, or those who really understand the lingo and are involved with it have the advantage. Again, as you saw in that video with the two gentlemen holding the dead cod in that lake, it's not natural. It's definitely not natural. It was green and full of algae and dry. You would have seen videos of people playing cricket in the in the lake as well because it was just so dried up and it wasn't from drought or climate change or anything like that. It was from pumping that water out and selling it off to people that are outside of Australia holding on to these water licenses that change and flex all the time, which results in just dry land and the decline of species, especially with fish and that sort of thing as well. And it's just tragic. I know that when I was coming back from the Big Red Bass trip in 2019 with my father, I think we were at either Walgett or Narrabri. And we set up camp and we had the afternoon just to kind of you know kick back and have some time to chill. And the river there, it was really low. You could sell where it used to flow and it just didn't look natural. One of the main conversations that people had, had when I was t- going through areas like Burke, Walgett, Ningen, Narrabri, Lightning Ridge, Everyone was talking about their towns having no access to water, and it's mainly because of this issue. Now, a lot of things like cotton, macadamias, almonds, whatever you're farming that uses a certain amount of water is necessary for to be grown in Australia because we all consume and use those products, which is fair enough. But greed might have something to do with it as well. The absolutely huge Cubby Station cotton farm, if you've ever seen footage of it, is pretty much an inland sea. A lot of almond and macadamia farms, which are very water dependent, are absolutely massive. I think in Australia and a lot of places around the world as well, there is a high demand for excess consumption. We obviously do consume a lot more than we need. That's why there's such high rates of obesity in Australia and America and the UK and a lot of other countries as well. So that might have something to do with it. It might be something in play there. But the fact that water is being taken out of these natural river systems and is being sold off to people as a stock commodity, that is the main issue. As I said earlier in the episode, if it was used as a good to trade for another good, then that would be fine. Part of me still thinks that, yes, if some parts should be regulated, like what I was saying before, you know, if two farmers are taking too much water from the town while everyone else is having an equal amount, then something should be done about it. But it's a, yeah, it's, a, it's an absolutely complex issue when it's not going to change overnight. I think the more people that know about this, the more we can raise awareness to have some more regulation on our water, especially from foreign investors too. China owns 10% of Australian water. Why? why? Why would another country have such large percentages of our water? It just doesn't make sense to us. A lot of our water, it flows out through to the sea from natural rainfall and that sort of thing. But if we had more dams built, we'd be able to store and catch more water, use it efficiently, have more regulated flows for areas that are using mass farming. 
and hopefully it would result in a better outcome for the Murray-Darling because it flows through four different states. It's a massive, massive system. It's the water and food bowl of our nation. But unfortunately, you've got people in the nationals and the liberals and everyone making these different trades, loopholes through different parts of the constitution, flexibilities through this Water Act, and they're benefiting off it, they're profiting from it, and it's absolutely crooked. There's lots and lots of things in this book that are probably a bit too complex to explain just from the citing of certain pages, but the other ones that I've cited before gives you a bit of an idea as to some of the fluctuations of prices of water that's occurred, especially in tough times, uh, how the water market and water trading works now, and just how much of a disaster the issue is. So guys, look, I highly encourage you to buy this book, Sold Down the River, by Scott Hamilton and Stuart Kells. It is a gripping read. It's seriously one for the collection. It's one you should be telling everyone about because it's a massive, massive issue. Also, think about this. The Snowy Hydro essentially turns water into electricity. That's where Sydney gets electricity from. That's where Melbourne gets electricity from. If you have a lack of water from the Snowy Hydro, what happens then? Sydney's going to run out of water. A major, vitally important city running out of water. I think that's then when everyone would notice that something's wrong and they would try and do something about it. And if you have other rivers that flow through the Darling, especially in Victoria as well, and if those flows don't go through those southern states, what happens then? Then Melbourne will run out of water. Once you start having capital cities running out of water, then the public will possibly notice a big difference in wondering how they can help. But I believe that might be when it's a bit too late. Everyone has to know about this issue because water is the life source of of everyone and everything. It's what we need to keep going. It's what we drink. It's what we use for cleaning. It's what we use for washing. It's what we use for creating aquatic environments. It is just of the utmost importance that this issue has to be heard and has to be spread. But we shouldn't abandon all hope yet because when you abandon all hope, you abandon everything. I do believe that if we raise awareness through conversations like this and my conversation with Ron Pike and this book and people like Helen Dalton as well, if you guys don't know who Helen Dalton is, she's a member for Murray and I believe she's pretty much the saviour of Australian politics. She tackles everything for all sorts of topics for rural and regional areas and she really holds other members of parliament accountable. It's got a very, very strong backbone, a really hard-working attitude and she can totally see what's happening and what we can do to fix it. That's how I found out about the book first, by the way. I saw a photo of her Facebook and she had the book and she was sitting on a park bench or something. Described the what the book's about in the caption and I thought, oh, well, I've, I've got to read it. I've got to, I've got to check this out. And I'm glad I did because what I thought I knew was only the tip of the iceberg. The amount of detail that goes into this book about the markets and statistics and the prices and the different families and farmers and people that have been affected by it not just farmers, but generations of farmers too. If you've had a, a family named farm for 100 or 150 years and it just gets taken like in a snap second because of the lack of water, because it's getting sold off to other corporations, that just ruins so much history, of so much Australian history. And it affects our water and food bowl in those areas and something has to be done about it. So I'll leave it at that because there's a lot more into the book that is going to be a bit too tricky to cite on here. You'll have to read it because chapter by chapter, it gets into more and more detail. Thank you very much for checking out this episode. Unfortunately, this will be the last episode of 2021. As I said earlier, there's a lot of guests that have been rescheduled or cancelled. 
So as much as there might be a lack of consistency for episodes for weekly or fortnightly or whatever, I believe that it's worth the wait to hold on and have these important conversations and these yarns with the appropriate guests to give you guys a better understanding of some of the topics that we talk about. So in saying that, I'd like to thank everyone for listening to A Little Bit Dusty this year. I started this just as an idea when I was doing my Dry July Challenge. It kept me consistent and kept me doing practical and things during you know, each day after work and that sort of stuff as well. This podcast is all self-produced. It does take a lot of time, and I do stress a lot of time, reaching out to people, the appropriate people, networking, doing the background research, preparing the questionnaires, recording the episode, uh, making the jingle, uh, producing it, tying up the levels and having it out for you guys every Friday. We have joined the ACAST platform as well and our numbers are growing. We're nearly at 100 followers on Instagram and 1,000 plays between all platforms. And I know it might not sound like much, but to me, I'm very humbled because it's an idea that I started just to try and get a bit more of an understanding of some of these topics and also share some of my experiences that I've had from going through these rural and regional areas. So I thank you guys very, very much for listening. I'll keep working my ring out to make sure that I can get some great guests on for next year. Maybe get some more video content on there as well. I'll see what happens, but I'll just yeah, still be doing some endless planning, still be working very hard to give you guys the content you deserve. So thanks very much for listening, everyone. I hope you guys all have a great Christmas break. Uh, stay safe. You know, the last two years have been a bit of a shit show all around the world, but through conversations like this, there's been other different ways that people have been informed and entertained about topics that they enjoy and hopefully from you guys tuning into this you've got a bit more of an understanding into what it's like in some of these rural and regional areas so we'll be back in 2022 i'm not too sure when but i'll keep you guys informed if you haven't please do subscribe to us on whatever you get your podcasts apple Podcasts, spotify itunes Castbox, whatever your platform may be follow us on instagram that's a underscore a little bit dusty that's where I post some video snippets of some of the episodes, some photos from my travels and some other cool content there as well. I recently joined Twitter as well to get some more insight into some of the facts on irrigation and that sort of thing as well. I do reshare and tweet a few things. You can find me there at BigTice93. And I'll keep doing what I can to make sure I can get the appropriate info to you guys and so you guys have a better understanding of what it's like across all topics, country, rural and outback Australia. Thanks again for listening to this series and last series. If you haven't listened to some back to the older episodes, let us know what you think. Please give us a rate and review as well. Write a comment in the comment section. That way, those who want to find us under the travel category will be higher in the charts and it keeps our algorithms nice and healthy as well. That's it for this year. Thanks very much for listening. We'll see you all in 2022. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.